Hey there, welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguez, the communications director at the foundation. Today's recording is from our May 26th event where we went inside the writer's room with Better Call Saul. We welcomed co-creator and showrunner Peter Gould and writers producers Thomas Schnauz, Jennifer Hutchison, Gordon Smith, Jonathan Glatzer, Ann Cherkis, and Heather Marion. The panel was wonderfully moderated by Stacey Wilson-Hunt of Vulture. For fans of both Better Call Saul and even Breaking Bad, the panel took a closer look at the choices each of the writers made this season, whether it was insight into the characters of Jimmy, Mike, or Kim, or why a location of a scene was important to the story. Just a heads up, we showed clips from episodes each writer had written during the panel. We weren't able to record them uh, for copyright reasons, so you'll notice about seven edits throughout the podcast where clips would have been played. Stacy does mention what episode the clips are from, so you're welcome to look those up to get some context behind the comments. Anyhow, don't forget to check out our other recent podcasts, including events with power showner Courtney A. Kemp and the man in the high castle's Frank Spotnitz, and our event with the writers and cast of Jane the Virgin. So without further ado, here is Inside the Writer's Room with Better Call Saul. Hey, everyone. Uh, this is a, a bigger stage than I normally do introductions on, so I'm just going to emotionally interact with you guys right now at a deep level of insecurity. Um, so uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, this all benefits the Writers Guild Foundation and all of our outreach programs. If you don't know, our library is free and open to the public because you guys are here. Uh, we have a, a, thank you, yeah. We have over 30,000 pieces of material there. Come on by, uh, it, it's totally free. Um, uh, our military vets program, we just had a huge uh, military vets weekend where we served uh, almost 80 vets, and that was totally free for them uh, with uh, mentorship with uh, Writers Guild members, and that we were able to do that because you guys are here. Uh, so you guys basically are awesome. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so thank you so much for coming. Um, uh, we've got a few awesome upcoming events, and I like the word awesome if you were here last night. Uh, at our other event, I said it like 20 times. Um, uh, we've got Preacher on uh, May 31st. We're doing a screening of that, too, which is going to be epic. Uh, yeah, it's going to be really cool. If you've seen it already, you know what I mean. If you haven't, come and see it on the big screen. Uh, we've got Mike O'Malley on June 14th, uh, who has made me cry more than any other man in my life. Um, if you watch Glee, then you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, some writers from Marvel's Jessica Jones on June 21st. Uh, so I want to just give a big, big thank you and a round of applause, actually, to AMC and Ryan O'Guire uh, for putting this together. Uh, anytime I do an event with AMC, I'm like, I love, love, love my job. And it's okay that I'm a failed, miserable writer because I get to work with AMC and Ryan. And I'm, to I, I'm totally being honest with you, too. Like, I really, really love working with Ryan and AMC. They're just an amazing, amazing place. Um, and I want to introduce our moderator. Uh, she's the Hollywood editor at uh, New York Magazine and Vulture. Her name's Stacy Wilson-Hunt. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Do you like Better Call Saul? Yeah. Well, good. You're in the right place. It's such a fortuitous coincidence. So without further ado, I will bring out our amazing group of writers. Uh, first and foremost, of course, co-creator Peter Gould, who is also the executive producer. Uh, 
Next, we have executive producer Thomas Schnauz. Co-executive producer Jennifer Hutchinson. Story editor Gordon Smith. Co-producer Jonathan Glatzer. Executive story editor Ann Cherkis. And staff writer Heather Marion. So before we get started on Saul-related questions, um, I wanted to ask each of you, what was your big break in the business as a writer? And I'm going to start with Peter because you're sitting next to me. Uh, my big break as a writer was, hmm, I had so many. I had a bunch of big breaks, and then I had a bunch of setbacks, and then more breaks. I'm going to pick, uh, there was a point in my life where uh, uh, we had no money, and uh, I was about to give up on the business. I'm married to a writer, and I know that life yes, very well. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and I'm it, living it. And it was, it, it was at that point... Uh, that HBO hired me to do an adaptation, and that uh, that really that really turned things around for me. So I, I think uh, I would have to say my big break was a a, a film that has never been produced, <laughs> but I got paid. So there's that. That's all that matters. How about you, Tom? Yes, also a, uh, a film that didn't get produced. I back in 1994 or five, I wrote a screenplay, and uh, luckily it got into the hands of Mark Johnson and an agent at Broder Curland, who eventually went to ICM, and that's where it started history. for me. Yep. <laughs> Very good. How about you? Um, my my big break was Breaking Bad. Actually, <laughs> I've been, heard uh, of that. Yes, yeah. I'd been a, an assistant for many years, and I had worked for Vince on the X Files, like way back in the day. And so when Breaking Bad started, uh, I asked him to hire me, and then he eventually allowed me to ascend the ranks. And even more annoying than that, Gordon, um, you <laughs> have one of the most uh, unique stories, I think, in terms of um, landing in a great writing job. Tell me about yeah, it. No, this, is, this is my big break. <laughs> uh, Tell us how you started. Um, I, I, I was very lucky. Jenny hired me, basically. Jenny was uh, uh, on Breaking Bad as a, a PA. Big mistake. <laughs> I know. It was a terrible mistake that everyone's been regretting since, but... Um, and then Vince and Peter uh, gave me the opportunity to staff on, on Saul season one. So Amazing. But you, but you were writer's assistant on Breaking Bad. I was, so. yes. You know, I mean, I started as a PA, and I, I worked my way up through. And through. you earned an Emmy nomination for your first season on Saul. Let's also say I, that. I did. Yes. Yeah. Very good. I'm telling you, it's all, the most annoying luck. story you'll ever <laughs> hear. This it's story. true. I mean, in, in terms of lucky breaks, it's like, it's, there's, it's, it's ridiculous. I'm going to be hit by lightning anytime soon. So. Well, luck only works if you're talented, and we all know that. Uh, how about you, Jonathan? Uh, I suppose a lot like Peter's story, there's breaks and setbacks, but um, I sold a pilot to uh, what was then Touchstone Features, uh, or t Touchstone Television, and uh, with David Duchovny and uh, some of the X-Files people, uh, Rob Bowman and Jeff Bell. And uh, the writer's strike came a few months later, and uh, it never got produced. But I was learned a lot in the process, and it was a break. I took very it. Very good. And Anne? Um, I guess it was my very first job. I was an assistant for five and a half years and writing on a desk 
meeting while I was an assistant, and then I um, wrote a script that got seen by a lot of people in Hollywood, and I uh, got an, an agent, and I went on a whole bunch of meetings, like 100 meetings <laughs> or something like that, and out of that came one writing assignment, and that job allowed me to quit my job as an assistant, and it allowed me to join the Writers Guild. Great, congratulations. <laughs> and how about you, Heather? Um, this is it. Um, <laughs> I was the writer's assistant season one. Like Jenny, I was an assistant for years before this. And season two, I was the script coordinator. And then season, at, at the end of season two, I got to co-write uh, the finale of events. And then I got staff this year. Wow, congratulations, <laughs> wonderful. So I think it goes without saying that the show is very unique. Um, very few spin-offs work, let alone a dramatic spin-off. Um, Joni Loves Chachi was amazing, but this is kind of a different show. Um, what is the toughest part about writing the show that would surprise people? Peter. <laughs> What's the toughest part? I, you know, it, I think that we, we try to just to do things uh, our own way. We try, we, try to, we try to be true to the characters. And the truth is that these characters, especially Jimmy McGill, uh, Saul, who will become the man who will become Saul Goodman, it, it turns out to be a kind of a deep, complex character who surprises us. And I, I think the truth is that it's not so much us trying to surprise the audience as the characters surprising us. And when we find that we're having trouble writing an episode, it's usually because we don't truly understand who this character is at this moment. Because the other thing about him, uh, and this probably is the thing that's most similar to Breaking Bad, to my mind anyway, is that this guy's always changing. His, he's, he's somebody who's in the process of uh, self-discovery and evolution, and it makes it kind of difficult to write, and it causes me personally a, a lot of dark moments, wondering if we're gonna get from point A to point B. But the good thing about it is if we, if it takes a lot for us to understand him, he's more likely to surprise us. So I think that the hardest thing about uh, making a surprising show is to really tease out who this character is and, and, and how, how, uh, how he reacts. And that's true of all the characters, of course, but I think especially Jimmy. Well, it's also challenging too because we, well, we think we know what happens to him because we've seen what we what we think is the end game for him, but of course we don't know that for sure. So we're dealing you're not only dealing with this retroactive sense of surprise, which when you think about it, Walter White, the Scarface to Mr. Chips or Mr. Chips to Scarface transition was actually very linear. If you think about you didn't have this curse of knowing Walt fifteen years ago. That's true. So that must be, I'm sure, tricky. We and really just keeping track of this, you know where you are in his evolution. This seems impossible. Why did we take this on? <laughs> this is a bad uh, idea. This is it a is bad, kind of insane, bad, actually. This is, this is These things crazy. go down. <laughs> These things go down, yes. I kind of, I, that's something I actually like about that process is that I, I feel like sometimes it's an easy crutch to rely on like mortal peril for, for the stakes of a, of a drama. And, and that's, you know, it, it just leads to bloodier and bloodier outcomes. But really, what are you, what are you charting there? Whereas for us, Mike's not gonna die, Jimmy's not gonna die, they're gonna live, but... You're ruining it. I know, I know, I'm sorry. If you were, if you're not spoiled, 
I, whatever. But, uh, but we don't know how, and we don't know what the stake, we, we don't know the stake of like what happens to someone's soul, what happens to somebody's character, like what does that look like, apart from the danger of like, is he gonna have his hand cut off or something? It's like, it's specifically about charting that journey in an, in an emotional space, and I think that, I, I like that for, because it liberates you, you know, we don't have to worry about that because we can't worry about that. Gordon went to college. He's very, <laughs> very smart. I, I agree I, with Gordon, but we also occasionally will come up with an idea in the room and say, that's great, but wait, we can do that. That's true. Because yeah. of our, our the mythology. Where, we're, where we're heading for right. so. But limitations can be uh, incredibly liberating, ironically, paradoxically, because you, you, know, you, you have a specific uh, uh, avenue that you have to travel down. It's just what what are the stores that you're passing? What are the houses that you're passing on that avenue? To kill the metaphor entirely. <laughs> you know, we're we're, dem we're the demonstration of a theory. There's a dramatic theory that uh, what's interesting is not what. Ha this is the opposite of the spoiler theory of things. Uh, because in, in spoiler logic, all that really matters is the outcome of the game. So if somebody tells you who won, or if you were to know what happened at the end of Game of Thrones, somehow that ruins, ruins it. You'll never watch it. Uh, but we, the show wouldn't work if that were completely true, because if that were completely true, uh, there'd be no reason to watch. I think our theory, and it seems to work so far, is that what's interesting is not just what happens, but how it happens and why it happens. So that's, it's a, uh, that's a better way of putting what I was trying to say. Not, not really. No, I think, I th and I think it does lead. It does lead. It does mean that we, you know, we don't have the ability, like Gordon says, to just kill people off willy nilly. Yeah. Although it's certainly tempting. <laughs> I'm sure. So um, we have obviously have a lot of ground to cover. So I think what we'll do is get into our clip portion of the program, and then for each clip we, which is attached to one specific writer, then we'll discuss that particular clip or that particular episode. So we're going to start with Tom. And this is episode 201, which is called Switch. And this is actually one of my favorite scenes in season two, um, with Kim and Jimmy brushing their teeth at the sink, which I think is very charming. And we get to see a very different side of both of them, which um, I fully appreciate. So why don't we roll clip number one, and we'll discuss it afterwards. It's very short. <laughs> so great. So I love, I love this scene for a lot of reasons. It's a very funny scene. But it's also we get to see Jimmy, which is so funny when you think about the version of him that we, that we saw in Breaking Bad. I never thought of him as being like a guy who did intimate things with women in a bedroom somewhere. Like I was like, oh, that's just Saul. Kind of gross, he's, right? Yeah, it's a, it, was a little, it was a little weird to think about that. But then when you see him and then you see the ease of their relationship, it's, it's very sweet. And this is... Early in the season, they've just had their little fun at the bar with this sort of, you know, tricking the guy. Um, but I'm wondering, where did this particular sequence stem from? Was this something that you drew from <laughs> a real-life experience? or No, so many of our scenes, are, it's a group think thing, so I can't even say for sure that, yes, I came up with the idea of them sharing toothpaste. Um, I picked the clip because, one, it's people in their underwear, and that's, you can't it's go wrong good. with people in their underwear. Uh, and, but... I always get a very nice compliment that people ask Ray and Bob, did you improvise that scene? And I'm always happy that they say it was scripted. So I'm very, I'm very proud of that particular aspect of the scene. And, how, and on that front, actually, how much improv did we see in season two when, when you, when we, in the final product? I mean, I don't think we... I mean, the actors probably do a little bit, but I don't think... I mean... It's pretty it's much all zero. scripted. Yeah. It, it, I, it's there are probably moments, but I, like that scene, again, was pretty... There may have been a... 
uh, a line when Bob was wrestling for the toothbrush that the, he, that he threw in there, but it was... Yeah, they tend to be very respectful. If, if there's like, I've had times where it'll be like, you know, can I add a two here? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> They're just really good actors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, and that's, that you know, I'm, again, proud of the writing, but yeah, those guys make it look like it's improv. So it's, I mean, we're very, very lucky with our, with our cast. Well, I'd say everyone's lucky on this show. Um, so the next clip is for Jennifer. It's episode 202. This, this particular scene is so weird. I love it. It's, <laughs> this episode's called Cobbler, and you'll see why. Um, the, Jimmy's speaking with the cops about a very specific issue, so if you could roll clip number two, that would be great. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm dying to know how many different iterations of the euphemism for squat cobbler you went through, and which did you throw out? Because the ones that we ended up seeing were pretty spectacular. Uh, there was a whole list. I, I don't remember ones that were thrown out necessarily. I went on some, like, thing about a blue ribbon special at some point, but that didn't make the cut. Um, Squat Cobbler came pretty early. Well, the scene was written, and then the idea to name it was something that Bob kind of brought in to the whole equation. He was like, you know, he, he, all these weird sex things have names. It should have a name. And uh, we're like, you are absolutely right, comedy legend. It we should do that. It seems like a Mr. Show moment. In yeah, a sense. exactly. Like, I can imagine him and David actually like ruminating over this. For, yeah, for and, and Bob very rarely actually like gives us you know notes or questions so so you know we, we tend to listen um, so there was sort of like a riff on this and it was brought into the room and there were already several ideas and then we added some more and and at first it was like maybe just squat cobbler and then it was like no 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 let's just let's take it till it breaks and so it ended up being being many many more well I think we all learned a lot watching that. <laughs> um, so the next clip is for Jonathan and episode 203 Amarillo and this shows uh, Jimmy selling the Sandpiper residents on their way to lunch on the bus. So let's take a look at that. So, so I've actually been wondering this for a while. Where do you get all these amazing extras, these lovely older people who just look so real and so yeah. just unplanned and as if he really did just step on a bus in the middle of Albuquerque? It's that just wonderful. That is Albuquerque. Yeah, who's the casting, the local casting director? Who is it? Kira. Kira, yeah. Uh, we, we, you know, they, we we came on set and and they were all there and uh, they were all wonderful <laughs> and it was Bob actually uh, talked to them all in advance just to sort of give them a preparation. Many of them, I think most of them, had never been on a film set before, just to tell them, you know, there's going to be a lot of waiting around. <laughs> and we actually were going to shoot this initially on a set because it was going to be hot out and all these elderly people on a bus was maybe not the best yeah. but we did it there and they were they were all wonderful they were all just and were, were they a lot of the same people we saw in the bingo scene previously I don't think we I think we made okay. a point of not doing that it's because it's supposed to be Texas and right. the bingo right, scene right. is back in Albuquerque and right. we're renowned for our attention to detail yes, yes exactly <laughs> we're, we're happy for that we're happy for that yeah. so this particular episode obviously features this scene but it also features um, you know, Jonathan Banks character Mike is one of my favorite elements mm -hmm. of the show and Writing for him specifically, I think, is probably a very interesting endeavor because even though we think we know something about him from the other show, mm -hmm. I still feel like I don't know anything about him. He still, rem for me, remains the biggest mystery. Right. Um, so maybe just describe a little bit your overall approach and in, in slowly starting to shed a little bit of light on his backstory. Obviously, we know about the, the son and the wife and, right. and the granddaughter, but again, I still feel like he's this you know, mystery that's slowly being opened for us. Well, I think, uh, well, this is, this is the first episode I wrote for, for the show, and I think that 
I'd have to say for both the scene for Jimmy and for Mike, um, I was walking into a situation sort of standing on the shoulders of, I'm gonna call you guys giants, all right, fine, <laughs> giants. Just being able to, I knew, I, the, so much of, of, of writing dialogue is understanding the, the cadence and the pattern. And yes, you're right, you don't always necessarily know what's the deepest, darkest thoughts going on inside of somebody like Mike, but you can, you can get a really big head start if all of this work has been done before you even got to the point where you're writing the scenes. I mean, Jimmy here in this scene, uh, you know, I was being inside the mouth of, uh, of Jimmy McGill slash, you know, who's flirting in this scene, particularly with being Saul Goodman. Um, you know, what a, what a great pleasure and an honor to, to, to do that. And I knew the tone, I knew how, how they were. I knew with Mike's scenes, I knew not to give him, you know, long speeches or to, you know, speak in flowery language. And then the, the brilliant thing is when you're on set, you, you, you with, with, with Jonathan, you give him these, these sort of bullet little, you know, Hemingway-esque, uh, bits of dialogue, and then he just, he man, he just brings it to life. You really, it's a, it's a really extraordinary thing to watch. Same thing with Bob discovering this scene, but their processes are, are very different. And, and Bob likes to figure it out as he goes. The first few takes are, are kind of him feeling it out. Uh, with Jonathan, and everybody's different, this is not better or worse, but he walks on, he's, he's got it. He, he is Mike, he is, uh, and it's really not in the dialogue. It's it's behind his eyes. It's in how he carries himself. It's it's really uh, it's really something. And, and Jonathan is a very sweet, sweet man who loves to joke around. So it's not like he's just threatens me all the time. Just so you know, <laughs> he, he does like to he, punch he people threaten. in the heart. He's, he is adorable. He's very, very sweet. Yeah, yeah. So episode two hundred four, written by Gordon Smith. It's called Gloves Off, and this is a scene that we're going to see between Jimmy and Chuck. Uh, in Chuck's home. So let's take a look at that. <laughs> so what we get to see about their relationship is another thing that I've just loved about this season because, again, I, we just didn't know that Saul had relationships. We didn't know he had sort of um, heartfelt connections with anyone, and I think it's very special to see his interactions with Chuck. Um, Gordon, how would you describe the way you all wanted to approach their evolution this season? Because there were a lot of you know, unanswered questions after season one. There were. Um, you know, the nice thing is that we don't necessarily have to approach the season because of the way we work in the sense that like, we just, as, as Peter was saying, we, we really are like, where are they right now? What, what's happening right now? Right now, it's 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 very much like the kind of or, or something like a directorial process where you don't want to tell people oh, you're going here, so you have to make sure you get there. It's just where have you been? Where have you been right at this moment? So, like, I, I feel like we didn't map out a plan. Is what I'm saying for for these characters. We were like, okay, well, what would happen if this happened, and then follow through with the, the consequences of it. And we also got to see the great, um, well, numerous scenes with Tuco, which is warms my yes. heart intensely to see this crazy, crazy bastard back on, yeah. on my TV screen. Um, but the whole, uh, I guess, uh, it ended up being a ruse with Mike, and he was supposed to, I, I don't want to ruin I'm assuming we've all seen it. Uh, but that particular scene in the diner, and it, was he going to do it, or was he not going to do it, that was so in incredibly clever. And I was wondering, you know, what was the sort of group think approach to coming up with that clever conceit? 
Um, we we try to think it through, like again, sort of just what where is everybody's head and what's the smartest thing for him to do? Okay, well he could just call the cops. Eh, that seems pretty limp. Like if he's going to call him, and and it it's not only limp, but it's like. Okay, so he calls the cops. Why doesn't Tuco assume that it's Nacho that turned him in? Why doesn't he turn assume that it's somebody else? So the smartest thing would be for Tuco to go down for a crime that he absolutely committed, that no one could could doubt, and that Nacho wasn't involved with. So we were kind of trying to figure out a way to separate their criminal activities, which is was difficult. But then we were like, okay, well, would it be this? Would it be that? We had versions where Mike you know, enlisted the help of other people, but we didn't want, we didn't feel like he would put other people in harm's way. So it was, it was really just process of elimination. It was like, okay, he's, he's got to do this. We know he's, all of this was in, we, we developed in terms of trying to figure out is Mike, you know, towards your question before, is Mike ready to be the guy that we've seen in Breaking Bad? Is he a hired killer? Is he a guy that will he do this? He seems conflicted. He, he really seems, seems conflicted, conflicted, exactly. He's not the guy that we that would be like, well, you know, you've got a problem, you might as well kill him. Like, he's, he's just not there yet. So uh, we wanted to sort of prove that out, and this was a way of doing that. It's very, very well done. Uh, so next clip is for Anne, episode 205, which is called Rebecca. And this is a great chat that Jimmy has in the bathroom with an old friend um, who's asking him, or actually very green with envy, about Jimmy's new job and his hot assistant. So take a look. <laughs> that guy is so great. <laughs> I hope we get to see him later. Um, so this scene's obviously amazing, but um, for me, this episode helps to further inform for me what is the best, one of the best narratives I've ever seen for... I don't want to say female character because that's assuming that I need to use that modifier female, but Kim kicks some serious ass this season. It's very fun to watch. And it's funny, I, I, as the season sort of unspooled, I started to see a lot of stories that said, this is the most feminist show on television. And it's, it's very interesting. I wouldn't have labeled it that, but I started to think there is no other character like Kim on television. And I say that meaning no character that's undergone either just the professional sort of stresses how her relationship is actually in the background. It's not, we're not seeing her in these amorous situations, which maybe is for the best, let's face it. Um, but we, I, it's interesting, and it, did this ever occur to you when you were working on her arc specifically that people would respond this way? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think we were very excited to give Kim a bigger role this season. Um, I think that in terms of her character. I mean, her character was there uh, in season one, but we really, we, we fleshed it out more and we felt that it was sort of time that this character, you know, got her due. And also because season two really hinges so much on uh, Jimmy's relationship with her. It's such a, um, I mean, especially in, in episode one, uh, in, in Tom's episode, where you see Jimmy take this job that he didn't think he wanted, basically for Kim. So this season, he is really, his motivations really are about her. So we wanted to explore that further. I mean, I certainly wasn't writing it thinking she's a feminist. <laughs> um, but it's nice that it, you know, sort of worked out that way in the sense that people really responded to her character, you know, in, in that way. And 
I mean, that was just a very nice, you know, sort of side note, I think. It's also, she's a rare character where you could easily sub in a male actor and nothing would change. There was, there was nothing about what happened to her this season that we could assign some sort of femininity to. She's just someone who's trying to work her way up in the world and her profession. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, I mean, I, you know, I think we all know lots of those women, you know. They exist, we just don't necessarily see them represented that way in, uh, you know, in the movies and in television. And I mean, you know, you treat, you, you, you approach every character the same, male or female. Um, and no, she's not, talking about wanting to have a baby or getting married and it just I don't know that never even occurred to us because it just doesn't feel like who she is right now or where she is in her life um, and this, so this is a snapshot of her life at this moment too exactly like we were talking about before. exactly two and years from now yeah I however mean, that takes right shape. right she may end up having kids one day I mean right. but right now no she's ambitious are you saying Saul has little kids out there that we don't know about? I did not say that <laughs> <laughs> we shall look forward to that we all have comb-overs <laughs> So uh, our next clip is for Peter from episode 209 called Nailed. And this is when Chuck tells Kim that he thinks Jimmy purposely sabotaged the Mesa Verde case. So please roll that if you would. So once again, this such an impressive sort of twist with um, the final scene in the copy store. And just, I, I love these moments. They're just, they're so intricate, the, the detailing of the, and showing him, like, switching the numbers. I love the attention that you, that you give to these things that you could have easily just removed from a montage and then we see it. But we see him in the coffee shop switching the numbers. And I'm wondering what, what inspired you to use that scene as the final and that horrifying moment, of course, when he, Chuck hurts himself at the end. Well, why a coffee shop to sort of have this moment un, be unveiled? We, you know, we, so much of uh, the season was about Jimmy... And Kim, like like everyone's saying, Kim, interestingly enough, I think we didn't know that until the beginning of this season. Just like with season one, we didn't completely understand how central Chuck was to Jimmy. I think we understood it better than we understood how he felt about Kim. And Jimmy switches these numbers, and he, by the way, he does this uh, in the previous episode. He actually does that in the previous episode, which was directed by Larissa Kondracki and so written by Mr. Schnauz here. Uh, and, and a beautiful, beautiful sequence. Um, he does that uh, really out of its love for Kim. It's, it's interesting. He's a guy who really has uh, sort of positive motivations in a lot of ways. He, he's the, well, you know, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and, and he's he's the poster boy for that, I think. Uh, and, and the copy shop seemed like the natural, the natural place, the natural place. I, I don't think when we broke the episode where he switched the numbers, we understood complete how central the copy shop was going to be and how that copy boy was going to play out. Uh, of course, once we, once we uh, finished breaking the, the following episode, we knew we'd better cast somebody great as the copy boy, and, and Alicia, Alicia was really terrific. Uh, this, that was, you know, it was, and it was, you know, it was a wonderful, wonderful Albuquerque location, too. Felt very real. <laughs> it, it is real. It's a real. It's not open 24 hours, however. <laughs> Sometimes we have to fudge reality a little bit. And then our final clip is from episode 210 called "Click," which is by Heather Marion. And this is when Chuck is taken to the hospital. Please show us that, please. Very well done. The the way that shot too. It's like a 
It's like, I really feel like I'm there, which is not a good, fun feeling. Um, so I actually want to talk about the almost assassination of Hector, which for me feels like how I felt when I watched Inglorious Bastards, and I'm like, I really hope they kill Hitler. And then I'm like, wait, I know that that doesn't happen. Like, I know that, I know what happens, and the whole time I'm, I'm really on the edge of my seat wondering if Mike's going to be able to go through with this. And I'm, just take me a little bit through that sequence in the desert and how you were able to, to achieve such suspense. Well, that, that scene written in the, in the desert was by Vince, but he, he it was... It felt very Vince-ish. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was a big moment for Mike because we've never seen him cross the line of, you know, becoming a killer for hire, and now he's, he's not doing it for hire, but he's ready to take the next step. And, um, you know, we... It was... Shooting-wise, it was very difficult because we're here on a on a the top of a mountain thing, and then we've got people a quarter mile away um, that we're directing at the shack, and there was a lot of coordinating between the two, and um, it it was a lot of work and very hard to pull off with no di dialogue, and um, the actors were fantastic, and there were a lot of moving parts that I wish Vince were here to speak on the production of it more. And I haven't actually seen the physical pages, but I imagine there's a lot of scene direction on those pages with, in the absence of dialogue. What, it, what does it feel like to you to write scene direction? Is that challenging for you? Is it, is it a reprieve from dialogue? What does it feel like for you? There's a lot of important stuff in, this, in the scene description that you, know, you don't end up seeing on, in, on screen, and a lot of it is um, finding the characters where their heads are at, and a lot of that is what we talk about in the room. Um, and it is a different beast than the dialogue, but um, it, it's very important, and it was fun, it was fun to write. And I, I think that that scene in the desert ended up being quite lengthy uh, it was on very the page. Long, yeah. But it was yeah. very well done, so congratulations. So I'm always interested to know, what is a day in the life of a writer on this show? So I would love to know, when do you start? What do you guys eat for lunch? I know that's always the big decision. Um, what does a typical day look like for you? Let's say pre-production, you're breaking story. Tell me, what, what, is that, what is it like physically? Peter, I'm going to make you start. All right, I'll start. Uh, you know, we, it, it varies completely depending on whether we're in uh, pre-production, as we are right now, production or post. You know, we wouldn't be here. I know I wouldn't be here if we were in production because the, the, the big pinch point for us is when we're trying to break stories at the same time as we're shooting. And so we try to get as far ahead as we can in, in, uh, in pre-production. We've averaged landing around breaking episode seven That's by the we, time we start. I uh, think this is going to be production. the one. Yeah, we'll see if we, we do that this season. I'm, I Don't I'm, be so <laughs> negative. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Peter was always so. I used to be so. Peter was always so positive. I'm Breaking Bad. I was. He's just gone to darkness. I was. No, I've gone to darkness. It's it's. Uh, <laughs> Because you know, so we, the writers' room opens. It, it, it opens usually around ten, ten thirty, and we go. It depends. It depends seven. Sometimes, it, if we really are, have a hot hand, we'll go till eight or nine. And if things are in a bad crush, which they haven't been in quite a while, we'll we'll meet on the weekends too. Uh, but the the you know, I know there are a lot of shows where the writers' room is only open for a few hours a day, but we really conduct the main creative business of the show in the, in the room. And we all work together. Having said that, um, there, 
at the beginning of the season, the way we are right now, all of us on stage are, are up, are in the room. We came here almost straight from the room, mm -hmm. along with Vince uh, and, and uh, Ariel Levine, who's here. She's uh, our writer's assistant, spending spending all day working together. <laughs> yes, hooray for Ariel! And and the. Uh, but what will happen as, as things progress is that people will leave the room to write, people will leave the room to prep their episodes, people will leave the room to be part of the shooting of their episodes, we'll have uh, casting going on in the room, we'll, uh, Vince and I will leave, or sometimes the writers will leave to, to tone, to, to meet with the directors. So at first it seems like there are a lot of people in the writer's room, and then sometimes towards the end of the season, there may only be one or two or three people uh, in the room breaking the last couple of episodes just because everyone else is out working on other episodes. And do you know at this point which episodes everyone is writing? Has everyone been assigned a certain episode to write? No, we don't okay. uh, yet, and, and I know it's a bonus. Every, everyone, <laughs> everyone up here wants to know, but we have one of the things that we have to take into account is that we have, in the room at the moment, we have three directors. Uh, I, I like to direct if I can. Vince certainly would want to direct, and Tom is, is, is such a wonderful director. So we have to coordinate that with the other directors who we bring in. And right now, we're in the golden age of television, which means that there is hot competition for the best directors, and we are so lucky. We've worked. We've worked with. The, you know, you've seen this, the scenes that you've seen up there, are the product of, of, of an amazing crew and wonderful directors. And so we're right now. Melissa Bernstein, our executive oh, producer, is out there. Is out there. Uh, you know, holding holding guns to heads uh, to get <laughs> to get these directors. In her own nice well, way. She's very right. nice, but very firm. She's the yeah. best. She is the best. And I'm always so interested to talk to writers about what conditions must exist for you to do your best writing. I interviewed Marta Kaufman yesterday, who writes Grace and Frankie. Of course, she did Created Friends. And she had the funniest answer to this. She said, I like to have Law & Order on in the background. <laughs> Turn down. Doesn't necessarily have to be the original Law & Order. It can be SVU, it could be cr Criminal Intent, et cetera. But she said, I just like knowing that it's back there and it provides this like great sort of white noise, <laughs> which I thought was so hilarious. Um, and I talked to Shonda Rhimes the other day too, who said she had to have noise-canceling headphones in. So I'm wondering, do, do any of you have these ceremonial things that must be in place for you to do your best work? A uh, deadline. <laughs> <laughs> it's sadly true. <laughs> Anyone else? Do you like a crowded room, a quiet room, laptop, desktop? What, what are your preferences? Uh, personally, I mean, in the room, I... I will fiddle with some with various like nano blocks, these toys to kind of get me a little bit. They're not Legos. They're not Legos. They're, not Legos. They're very small. <laughs> but so I'll do that in the room and then music when I'm out. So it's like I need something to keep me distracted or I fidget too much. And is there anything you listen to or watch to get you sort of inspired, um, whether it's a movie, you know, directing particular director whose work you love, or is there music that really gets you focused? I'll rewatch episodes. I mean, on Breaking Bad, I would yeah. go back and watch previous seasons, and I will probably do it when I start to write whatever episode I get. I will go back and watch uh, things we've done. It just helps you get the voice, the character's voices in my head. Yeah, I would say ditto. You know, I'll go back and watch some of my favorite scenes with those particular characters in them so that I just have the voices in my head. Um, but I write complete silence. Um, and I That's need... crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and no, do you do I... that at home or at in, in the um, room? 
either in my office or yeah, at home, the library. I usually go to the library. Um, One of the last places on earth where there's actually quiet. I know. I try to. I mean, I try to find quiet ones. And when it gets noisy, I leave and I go to another library. So <laughs> I just make the rounds. Um, so we need books just to have places to work. So we, we <laughs> hope that books never go away. Exactly. I don't write in coffee shops. I'll do a. I'll do a draft wearing noise canceling headphones, and I'll find some piece of music that I usually listen to a lot. Uh, for, and then until I wear it out. And then uh, once I've got a draft, I, I'll sit in a coffee shop and mark it up and then make all the changes and then do it again and make all the changes until someone tears it out of my hands. <laughs> and at what point is Vince reading everyone's work? Is he involved the entire way through? How does that work? Basically, the writers will do a draft, and it depends on the work. It, the workflow depends on the season, and you know, very often, uh, very often, Vince and I will read it together, and then we'll give, we'll, we'll sit down. We'll, we'll, it's, it's the writers' draft. We'll sit down. We'll sit down with the writers, uh, especially earlier in the season, and kind of go through it scene by scene, and that's been really uh, productive. It's like it's, it's, it's just to talk it, talk it through, and what we think, what we think is working, or what we think, you know, we might want to alter a little bit, and that, that's, a, that's great. And then when we get down to it, uh, Vince, Vince is known for doing He does meticulous, tiny notes on, on, uh, on drafts, but generally, uh, generally the, usually the writers, you know, nobody, nobody else is really touching the script except for the writer. That's our ideal circumstance, but it doesn't always work out that way depending on when there's a time crunch. And which uh, either scene or episode has caused the biggest debate in the writer's room. What, what was a moment that you just found yourselves, you know, discussing possibilities more than in, in the past or for previous episode? I'd say it would probably be the beginning of the season. 201. Oh, 201, yeah. yeah. yeah 210 201. ends with, uh, with Jimmy. Dun, Locked down in the basement. Dun, 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 <laughs> and we, well, it was my, as I was coming in for this season, I was like, okay, so where, where do they think Jimmy's going? And we didn't know. <laughs> yeah, we didn't know. So yeah, the decision to take the Davidson main job came kind of later. Uh, and, and yeah, we did talk about that one a lot. Uh, that's yeah, a really, we pitched, that's a really we good We pitched <laughs> so many alternatives. So we many. Yeah, what were the alternatives? I always looked at I mean, we may actually do some of them at some point, yeah. but like we, we pitched crazy things. We pitched he takes the job and then he steals from them and just like things that were. <laughs> Crazy, but we had to sort of prove out like what really is he? Get, where where is his head? Where where? What would he really do? What's the best thing for him to do? So sometimes that's by process of elimination. So. Vision Quest was was very. Uh, yeah. Oh, did we do that? We'll get to that. But but you know I think I think the thing was is that once we figured out Kim's part of things, the equation, uh, that was that answered pretty much all of our questions. Once we were able to see it through that lens, that Kim was the most important person to Jimmy. Then the answers kind of fell into place. It, it's funny, but it's 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 that's a great that's a great observation. It, it's the power of thinking moment to moment. Uh, oftentimes, you know, our view of writers uh, that I read is that you know they have these big overall plans, and then the characters kind of take their marching orders. But I think that that we got really stuck in that that episode two hundred one, and that the breakthrough was when uh, we started thinking is. G 
Kim has gone out on a limb to get Jimmy this little meeting to possibly lead to a job. Is he just going to leave her high and dry and, and drive away? And then so we started thinking, well, does he call her and say, by the way, the job's not for me? Uh, does he do this? Does he do that? And if, if why, why, what is, what is really going on here? And then we realized we had this little, this little opening that maybe he did actually go. Uh, and now we're really, this is a deep cut. Hopefully you've all seen the show. Uh, the, uh, that he actually did go and have, have a little meeting and asked her the question that was really the one that was on his mind, which is, if I take this job, is, is this happening finally? And, and that, I think that led us to the whole season. But it was by, instead of thinking about giant ideas, about thematically, what, you know, where is he psychologically? Where is he, where, what's the, the great grand theme of the show? It was thinking about uh, why, what is he doing here? Why would he drive away like that? Isn't there some unfinished business? And most importantly, what do you eat for lunch? <laughs> we actually don't generally eat in the room. Uh, that, that's kind of a tradition. So do you recommend leaving, leaving the room to eat for a mental break? Yes. Okay. yes. Take note, guys. Yeah, check your email, you know, do some shopping. Um, so, you know, sometimes we walk, sometimes we order. It's, it's just, it's, it, we, we, I don't know, we haven't really done the lunch thing together for, for quite a while, so we hate each other. Need a little bit moment. of a break, I guess. <laughs> yeah. we, we used to do, and at the beginning of seasons, we often will we'll yeah. sit and have a, have a couple of big lunches. To, we haven't done that this season. We find it hard to work and eat, I think, yeah. as a group, so. No, I mean, we don't, it's, we just, it, if we're eating lunch, we're socializing, we're not talking about the show. Right. Yeah. Which but, is very reasonable, by the way. So we have some time for some questions. Uh, maybe if we could bring up the lights a little bit. And I believe we have some microphones positioned in easy, safe areas. And I should preface this by saying, please have a question and not so much a testimonial because that is more helpful for everyone. So, and start with the lady over here. I'll start with my testimonial. Um, we have the most wonderful library, uh, but your scripts are not there. Would you please provide them? We'd be very, very grateful. I don't have any control over that, so if you want to weigh in. Generally, what we've done is, is with Breaking Bad, for instance, was to just give the whole, the whole show to the library once, once the series was over. And really, part of the reason for that is every once in a while, there's something that gets omitted from a script uh, that actually ends up being really important to us that we end up using in a later script or there may be even a piece of direction that will be very revealing about where we think the show is going. So it's... it's uh, it, Which was the case between season one and, and season two. We had uh, the teaser from oh, 109, right. which and we shot, which Tom, Tom shot, and it was great, and we, we loved it, but we couldn't use it for, for time reasons, essentially, in season one, and we used it as the teaser for 207 this season, so. It's because we're, we're very secretive. <laughs> but but they, will be, they will be in there, and you know, who knows how long the show is gonna go. Not, not that much longer. How, is, how long is the show gonna go on that topic? How long is the show gonna go, Heather? <laughs> Tether to to a satisfying forever. conclusion. Till it breaks. I'll, I'll ask Charlie Collier next time I see him. So I'll actually go over here to this gentleman in the hat. Thank you. Thank you for being here, by the way. It's great to see the uh, people live in flesh. I would like to ask a question. How did Better Call Saul come about from the beginnings of starting right after Breaking Bad and how it came into a, the tots? Well, this is, this is a question I've answered a few times, but there are other people here on the stage who were there from the beginning 
the, the, the three people to my left were all there through most of the process. So what, what do you, uh, Jenny, what, you were there. What do you, what do you remember about us talking about a Redder Call Saul show? Well, I know that this came up pretty early, pretty early on actually in Breaking Bad. There was, Vince always was like, oh, I'd love to do a Better Call Saul show, sort of as a joke. And, um, but he was totally serious. And I think my memory is that you, because you, you originated the character of Saul, was like, hey, maybe, maybe we could do this show. And <laughs> just like that, just like that, very, you know, a little sleazy. Uh, no. And I think you guys started talking about it and then called us about, you know, if we wanted to come on. And uh, I think it kind of, you guys had ideas, but, but we actually all kind of came together as a group and really kind of figured out what the show was going to be. Yeah. Um, AMC and Sony were very, very trusting. And Vince <laughs> and I did, we pitched to them twice. Uh, once, they just said, we need a call about this just to see if there's something that we can do. And we threw out some ideas that we didn't end up doing at all. In fact, one of the ideas we had... At what point was, in Breaking Bad was this? this what was, season? Yeah, we were in post on the very last season oh, of Breaking okay. Bad. Uh, and so, you know, we... Vince would be editing, and then we'd go out to lunch and walk around Burbank and have have a have a beer, and just talk about what you know whether there was a show there. And the, our first call with AMC and Sony, we said let's. We were thinking maybe a half hour, single camera, and wacky mm. people come in, mm. and it's like Mash. There's no there's no uh, no laugh track, and, and and I was a little bit, I, I was. I liked the idea, and then the more I thought about it, the more worried I got because I felt like if we were half hour, we'd be obligated to be funny, funny. Yeah. And, and I, I, I don't personally, I don't feel strong in the like the fun. I'm not like a comedy, comedy person. I feel like irony maybe is more. My well, the, the way you guys do shows, like it feels like a movie, really. Like the way you guys set up things, the foreshadowing, and the, the stories, how you open the episodes, it feels like a film. So. Kudos to you guys. You guys have really changed the, the way TV is watched now. So thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Very nice. Sir, over here. Um, it, it sounds from what you're saying like you're kind of, to some extent, making it up as you, you go along. You don't know exactly what's going to happen, and, and you don't know how long it's going to go on for. Um, how does that affect the way you structure it? I mean, if you thought he had five seasons, or this show had five seasons, and you were going to, you could plan what was going to happen to Jimmy all the way through that. I guess that would be one way of, of approaching the writing thing. But if you don't know if, heaven forbid, AMC had to cancel you next year, um, what, would, what would that do to affect you know, the, the way the overall show is going to be written? Well, I, I don't want to be disingenuous, because we certainly spend a lot of time talking about what, where we think it's going. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about how this guy turns into Saul Goodman. Uh, so we do, we do talk about it a lot, but we, until we've actually broken it moment to moment, nothing is written in stone. And usually those big ideas don't, aren't necessarily the ones that we, we end up doing. Uh, if my, our hope and our, our, our my, my, the hope I nurse is that if AMC and Sony decided that they'd had enough of us, uh, that they would, they would give us enough notice that we could try to wrap the story up and whatever, and that was actually what Vince asked of them uh, on Breaking Bad: was please let me know if you're going to cancel us, let us finish the story, and uh, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be able to finish it, and they won't. They won't pull, pull the hook out and pull us off stage. Great, thank you. Over here, 
Uh, I had a question, uh, especially with like the technical aspects of the show, like dealing with the Sandpiper crossing uh, cases and such. What's it like as writers working with the technical consultants, like with these cases with legal jargon and such? Do you guys consult with them first before starting to write, or do you start to like write out outlines first, then go to them to be like, hey, would they do this or that? So, Gordon, one one of our. <laughs> Uh, a couple of our primary technical uh, advisors share half of my DNA. Uh, my mom and my sister are both attorneys. Um, so we tap that resource quite a bit. Um, and it depends on where we are. If we have an idea and we're like, I wish there was something, maybe they find something. And we, we start, I'll start a conversation with, with them. My, my sister has actually ended up, my sister has <laughs> eerily sort of started paralleling Kim, like she's ended up on like a doc review now and she started doing a lot of class action work and stuff like that. So she's she is versed in the, the, the kinds of law that we've been talking about. So we it really depends when we have an idea where we go. And we'll, we'll also uh, we'll talk to our, our, our great assistants. Um, Ariel will do fantastic research just to be like, what is it? Are we are we even close? Is this just complete bullshit? And if it's complete bullshit, then we try and find something not less bullshit, and then steer into it from there and get more and more, you know, more and more precise as we go. I think we also pride ourselves on having uh, a show that involves law that doesn't involve murder. It involves elder abuse and sexy subjects like banks opening up and, you know, regulatory committees. And somehow we find the drama in there. I think that uh, probably the key is that the, the, the legal stuff never overwhelms the character stuff when, when you have scenes like that. Over here. Uh, how was the opening shot of episode 208 executed and was it actually written that way? It was not written that way. Uh, our great director, Larissa Kondraki, uh, pitched to us doing a one which terrified me because it was gigantic and I didn't know if we had the money or time to pull it off, but uh, this is the I long did, tracking shot before it's a long. I didn't know we could do this. Yeah, touch of evil type uh, opening shot, and uh, she planned it out. And it was to her credit and the crew's credit that they pulled it off. They started guy in a steady cam climbed aboard a crane up over the border crossing. Our cameraman uh, Peter stepped off the crane onto a. A uh, little go Paul, I'm sorry, Paul. Jesus, uh, Paul uh, got onto a go kart, which drove into the into the bay. Um, there was a single cut in the sequence. Uh, I won't tell you where it is. You can guess on your own. I was own. looking. There is one. There's I a single cut. Three times. Uh, he gets off. Uh, it's the, not where you think it he is. He gets off the go kart. He goes into the truck, all all steady cam, and the shot is a, actually much longer than what was on screen because for time we had to. We had to cut it down. Uh, the, the shot continued. He got back on a crane, which craned up and saw the truck driving away. But we we cut the shot off where the guy takes the popsicle stick out because that told us it was just for time and it just sort of told the story right there. The rest was impressive, but uh, sometimes you have to kill your darlings, and we how shortened many, it a little bit. How many pages was that? That particular sequence. Three, three, four, maybe. I, how many takes did it get to get it? To I don't remember. It was a full day, right? We did the, yeah, we shot that first half of the, the oneer was shot in a day. And uh, we probably did maybe four takes of each half of the, where the cut is. So, and uh, they, our digital, digital work on a show was amazing because there are two completely, you know, the first half is in the morning and the second half is at night. And they really, 
smoothed it over so you cannot tell. And there's also yeah. the, the tops of some of the buildings aren't there. It was actually shot at a small airport, so the, really? the, uh, the, the control tower was removed by Bill Polowski and his digital team. And most of all, I have to give credit uh, to our uh, producer, our physical producer, Robin Sweet, because any produ most producers I've worked with would have heard this idea and said, just shut it down. <laughs> not, which said, is what I expected. And they she would, said, I expected them to say, said, you're crazy. Yeah, she, you know, or they would have said, you know, can you do it maybe in a corner or somewhere? Yeah. Or maybe it's inside a building that, and outside is the... Uh, it, was the written, it was written with the details of the border inspection yeah. and not, nowhere on the page did it say this is a winner. Yeah. It, it, it was amazing. question. Sir? Thank you. Uh, you guys often do scenes where either we can't hear the dialogue, like when Hamlin is not giving Jimmy the job for the first time, and then later in the copy room when we're looking across the street um, from Jimmy's point of view, uh, do you guys write the dialogue for any of those sequences? Because it seems so specific what's going on, even though we can't hear it. Oh yeah, great question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a, Patrick performed in the, the, the Hamlin scene at the copy room. He, he said everything. Everything that he there's a whole dialogue that he he did. It's just we all, but we always knew that we were. The intention was that his his gesture and you know Jimmy's demeanor was going to convey the story. So they don't get off just because. Uh, and even in the scenes, I believe in the desert, like there's a whole bunch of like in the, the they're miles. He's miles away. Mike's miles away. But there's. There's dialogue that, that yeah. uh, Nacho and, and Hector have, right? Dialogue in Spanish, and we sent that to a translator. And we do, we are very detailed, as, as Peter said, and we have a lot of pocket dialogue for the dialogue that you don't hear, and, or you hear snippets of it, and that is all, all written out ahead of time. Detail-oriented and heartless towards yeah. our actors. And so. it, it's also, it's all, it's all recorded, too. Sometimes we use it. Because sometimes we use it. There, I, there was a, a, a montage scene in season one and I was convinced that you weren't going to hear any dialogue. I thought it was going to be wall-to-wall -wall music. And I reluctantly wrote a bunch of pocket dialogue. And uh, Kelly Dixon used 90% of it. And of course, Bob is so damn funny that, you know, that there's uh, one of my favorite lines uh, in that sequence, or maybe even that episode, was just was one, a piece of pocket dialogue that I was like, oh, God, write more pocket dialogue. So when he says, you're like a troll under a bridge. And, and, and it, was, it, was, it was just too good not to use uh, the, way, the way Bob did it. So it, it's, it's, you have to be careful with pocket dialogue because it might end up on screen. So these guys all write just such wonderful dialogue that it's, we try to use as much as we can. Thank you. Sir? Um, you mentioned uh, Kelly Dixon. I just want to thank, besides making the show, the podcast is great. And I hope you guys continue it in the uh, next season. I've learned more from that podcast than from film school in a lot of ways. Oh, that's uh, so sad. <laughs> it is. Um, she, should my, charge, she should start charging film yeah. school prices. <laughs> Uh, my question has been asked in this theater a bunch of times. When you're hiring writers, what are you looking for in prospective scripts and in the meetings and interviews that you have with them? Million dollar question. Uh, all right. I guess you're I the know. one who that's hires me. That's writers, Peter. That's me. Uh, you know, you, you look for writing that. I, well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll say what I look for. I look for writing that's that's crisp and fun to read, and I look for for people who write visually. 
uh, I think it's, I believe it's a visual medium and every single one of the writers up here writes movie scenes, which is, which is different from writing. Uh, I, none of, none of, none of, nobody here was uh, a playwright, I don't think. But uh, there, there, I look for personally visual things and things where there's a, an attention to detail where the world seems full, where I'm interested in the psychology, the characters, and just you look for something that's engaging most of all and uh, has, a, you know, has a sense of verve. And you know, with, when you meet folks, you know, it's, it's so hard to tell in a, in, a, in a little, you know, you sit down for a 30, 40 minute meeting and, and you, you, know, you shoot the shit and hopefully you think to yourself, well, is this somebody I'd like to sit in a room with for uh, you know six hours a day, eight hours a day for for weeks on end, uh, and you know the truth is that that writing for television, there are a lot of different aspects, and it, you it it's very hard to to find someone who's great at all of them. There's the aspect of there's the just writing on the page, which is absolutely the foundation, but there's also working in the room with other people. There's working on the set. There's there's a lot of intangibles. And we've been very, very lucky. But I don't think, I also don't think it's a coincidence that uh, the three of the writers up here came up, had the experience of being a, a writer's assistant, and they got to see, and it's, it's something I wish I had had. You know, if I had an alternate universe career, I would have gotten to be a writer's assistant on, a, on one of these shows, because I, I think it would have taken a lot of the, uh, I would have understood what was going on a lot better in season, the first few seasons of Breaking Bad. I don't know if that, does that answer your question? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, it, and I, I will good say... Good writing. Like, yeah, just write good. Yeah. Write good. But, but I oh, think okay. that what Peter's saying is there is a social aspect to this job, and that's something that as a, coming up as a writer's assistant, you learn how a room works, you learn the dynamic of a room. There are a lot of staff writers, their first day of work as a staff writer, that's the first time they've been in a writer's room. And that's, that's a hard, it's a hard, you have to kind of learn on the job, whereas, you know, Gordon, Heather, and I, we had been in rooms before, so we, we knew how they worked, and, and I, I would just say, if you want to be working in TV, like, work on that social aspect. Like, you can't just be locked in your room, hunched over a computer, like, go write novels. Like, you have to be able to work with people and be collaborative, and that's, that's a really important aspect of the job as well. Yeah, don't. Don't be a jerk, basically. Don't be a too. jerk. Like it's it, which it sounds like it, it's it's actually really hard because if you're you want to pitch and you want to know that people like people are hearing you and you want to be able to like get your ideas out there. See, I'm I'm contributing my ideas, but you need to be respectful and kind of understand, like not interrupt people. Like you 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 need your voice to get out there, but not to like step on people or be be the kind of people person that people go. Okay, you know, you're talking. So I, I think there's the social aspect is so crucial to like, you, you, you're locked in a room with people for eight hours a day. You're gonna be your worst self at some point, so. But I will say that, I mean, we have such a polite room. <laughs> it's, this is everyone, not normal, this Everyone situation. is it's so respectful yeah. of each other and uh, it's, it's a pleasure, and I, I, from what I understand, it is very rare. <laughs> it is, trust me, I've interviewed a lot of writers. This is not. <laughs> also, also, and this is gonna sound like the stupidest thing possible, but spelling and punctuation counts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sir, in the tie. Yeah, hi. We just have time for one more after you. Um, so, 
in not in every episode, but in some episodes you have, uh, I guess, kind of a flashback. But it's not, it's not anybody's particular flashback. It's just the past uh, in whatever time. Then you have 2002, and then you have present day, like 2015. So uh, I was curious about the past past. So um, it it's really interesting how, um, like in Re the Rebecca episode, um, you were you were not expecting Chuck to have a wife and all that, and it's just a long sequence, and uh, and then it doesn't really seem to be like Rebecca doesn't come up in the 2002 timeline. It's she, it's just a flashback, and I think there's uh, it's it feels original and a little different. It's a different take on the flashback, but that but um, you don't have a flashback in every episode. So I was just curious about your process with those flash flashback stories and like, okay, this episode we're gonna have that past flashback, or uh, well, this is a good good idea, but we're gonna save this for episode two hundred seven or whatever. So why don't you take that one, Tom? Yeah, we don't plan on. You know, it's not a, not a formula that we're going to have a flashback in a certain episode. It's sometimes it just feels right. I mean, that's the best I can answer. Uh, we'll break an episode. A lot of times we'll break the episode without a teaser or with a teaser that will move down into the body of the episode uh, if we feel like we're short and then come up with a new teaser. But um, there's no real hard and fast rule about it. I mean, we've started each season with a flash forward to Gene. Uh, that's the only rule we've kind of gone by so far. Um, but as far as our flashbacks, sometimes it just, you know, there's no, I don't think we have a good reason why we, we do them. It just, it just feels right sometimes. It, it's, yeah. it, it's usually, the reason is usually something to do with the character. It's something to do, hopefully it has some connection to the episode. And I think with the Rebecca episode, which Anne wrote so, so beautifully, one of the things that's so wonderful about that teaser is that you get to see uh, an early look at Chuck's jealousy for Jimmy uh, and the, the relationship between these two brothers. And, uh, and you know, Jimmy has that spark and that, that common touch that Chuck doesn't. And it, I just love the way, I love the way Anne, Anne wrote it and the way those actors put it over and, and John Scheiben directed it. But that's, that it, 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 so hopefully what happens is, I, I don't know, to my eye anyway, hopefully what happens is that uh, you may not know right away why that teaser goes for the episode, but there is a reason. There's, there's a reason why it, it goes with that particular episode. It's not just a random flashback. And we talk very broadly at the beginning of the season. We'll just throw out a lot of ideas, and a lot of them will be flashback ideas about a character, and we'll write it on an index card and put it on the board, and sometimes we'll just it'll just, you know, fit thematically with an episode. Uh, it sometimes just works out that way. And sorry, thank you. over here. Uh, thank you very much for coming today. Uh, I was actually wondering, I'm most impressed with the tone of the show in reference to Breaking Bad. Since you are a spinoff, it seems that you the show is such a different pacing, a different sense of humor, and yet does feel of the same world and kind of that very, very specific uh, kind of feeling and atmosphere that I think got people into the Breaking Bad world. I was wondering, as this show came into being, 
uh, what were the conversation, were there conversations in reference to we want this to be like Breaking Bad, we want this to be an evolution from Breaking Bad, we want this to be a departure, or is it just a natural kind of inclination, this is an entirely different show, we never have to think about making it different or making it similar? I mean, for me, it really came out of the character of Jimmy uh, when we started. Um, because when we started breaking it, I think sort of rhythmically, we, we started breaking it like a Breaking Bad episode. And then we found that um, Better Call Saul goes faster than, than Breaking Bad does uh, with the Jimmy scenes. The Mike scenes tend to, to, to run sort of at a Breaking Bad pace. So that was something we sort of discovered with Jimmy, how Bob plays Jimmy, how we wanted to write him. Um, and so tonally, it really came out of the character. And then sort of the thing that, that I think is sort of the, the biggest not challenge, but the thing we talk about a lot is sort of the tonal shifts between like Jimmy's stories and Mike's stories, because Mike tends to live more in a Breaking Bad kind of world, and sort of being able to shift between those two worlds can be really it can be really tricky because you don't you don't want it to be jarring, um, and there have definitely been times where like we've had to kind of cut a scene or or sort of like re-break a scene because the transitions weren't working, um, sort of between the two characters. But it, it really was a, a learning process of just like. How do these characters talk? How do they move through the world? Um, and and I, I feel like it really came from them, ultimately. Visually, we talked about, we wanted, in the very beginning of season one, we talked about wanting to be different from Breaking Bad. And I remember talking about Breaking Bad had a lot of handheld. And we sort of encouraged our directors to stay away from that and do more locked off, kind of off-center shots, you know, uh, more unique framing. We did that. We also talked about never doing those shots from inside of things because they were so Breaking Bad, and that went right out the window. So can't uh, resist them. You cannot resist. Yeah, you, you, you see a toilet, you want to put a camera inside of it. So. It's also amazing too that it, this is taking place in the same town, in the same place, and the fact that it does feel this different. The saturations are different. The landscapes are different. It, I mean, to reinvent a show that actually takes place in the same place is really, I think. Like, very well done. So all of your early conversations paid off. Well, thank you all for being here. I think we all learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.